2: Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, May 7th. I'm Peter Cooper and we have Real Vision's Managing Editor Ed Harrison and Roger Hurst standing by to give you their macro analysis. But before we go to them, let's go over the latest developments in the news. Today, I'm going to dive into what's going on in the Eurozone and what its economic future will look like over the coming months. And then I'll hone in on Italy and where they're at now. The European Commission released a forecast saying that the Eurozone's economy will contract by 7.7% this year due to the COVID-19 outbreak. As a result, inflation will slow to 0.2% this year, and the aggregate budget deficit will climb up to 8.5% of GDP. As compared to 0.6% last year. The countries in the eurozone who face the most difficult path to recovery are Greece, Spain, Portugal and Italy. Italy's GDP is forecasted to contract 9.5%, second behind Greece at 9.7%. Italy's budget deficit will reach 11.1% of GDP from 1.6% last year and their debt will be at 158.9% of GDP this year. As we know, Italy's battle with the coronavirus has been devastating, and their total confirmed deaths almost reached 30,000, the third highest globally. However, this wave of coronavirus in Italy has been winding down as their confirmed case counts show a defined downward trend. Having a sense of what stage they're at in combating the virus and the state of their economy, what happens next? If it wasn't bad enough that Italy's debt was already headed towards extremely high levels this year. Italian debt experienced a sharp sell-off on Tuesday after the ECB and their bond-buying program was confronted in Germany's constitutional court. This court case will weaken the support that the ECB had decided to provide Italy through purchasing assets, totaling €120 billion through the end of 2020. In terms of labor markets, unemployment in Italy has actually dropped sharply in the last couple of months. Italian unemployment has been notoriously high for a while, but in March, the rate had dropped from 9.3% to 8.4%, when most countries' unemployment rose sharply. ISAT, Italy's National Institution of Statistics, also reported that this was due to a jump in inactive, working-age citizens, as people had dropped out of the labor force altogether. They cited that 267,000 fewer people were looking for work during March. We'll need to wait a few more weeks to see if this pattern persists in April's data, although it is likely that it will, as their lockdown has been the longest and most restrictive out of all European countries. Before handing it over to Ed and Roger, I want to touch briefly on Norges Bank, Norway's central bank, and their recent decision to cut rates. Norway's economy is expected to contract by 5.2%, and the size of this contraction is unlike anything that Norway has seen since World War II. According to Øystein Olsen, governor of Norges Bank, Data from Norway's Labor and Welfare Agency shows that April unemployment in Norway was more than 15%. The central bank had cut interest rates down to zero from 0.25%, and this is the third rate cut Norges Bank has done in less than two months. For the time being, they will keep interest rates at zero and not fall into negative territory. However, this isn't fully ruled out. And with that, let's hear what Ed and Roger have on their minds. Ed?
0: Thanks for that, Peter. It is Thursday, the seventh of May. I am here in the DC area. I am talking to our managing editor over in the UK, near Ipswich, is what I understand. Roger, is that right? That's
1: correct. Yeah, Albury near Ipswich.
0: Excellent. So Roger Hurst uh, is is the name. Roger, let me tell, let me read something to you because I actually I, I sent this to you earlier today, but I think this is important given the conversation you were having about monetary policy with with Ash yesterday. This is from Axios. They quote from Bank of America Global Research, the monetary policy response to COVID-19 has been massive. What's happening? Led by the Fed, which has added $2.5 trillion to its balance sheet in less than two months, all of the world's major central banks have taken extreme policy action. The Bank of Japan has doubled its ETF purchase target limit and increased its purchase of commercial paper and corporate bonds. The Bank of England has restarted quantitative easing and is expected to double its balance sheet holdings by the year end. The Bank of Canada has launched QE for the first time. The Reserve Bank of Australia has joined the Bank of Japan in attempting yield curve control. The big picture, B of A analysts are saying they expect total holdings of the big six central banks to increase from forty-six percent of GDP at the end of two thousand and nineteen to around seventy-eight percent by the end of two thousand and twenty. And just as a, a refresher, in two thousand and seven, that total was actually sixteen percent of GDP. Uh, what do you think about all this firepower?
1: The whole this whole scenario has been so kind of rapid in its unfolding from the collapse in economies and also the response from central banks. And this is something that we've not dealt with before. We've seen collapses in economies before, and although often we don't see the collapse coming, the 2008 collapse was two, maybe two and a half years in the making. You know, we all, a lot of people saw the bubble in 2000, and it really took three years to unwind. This, you know, some people say that the underlying fragility was always there, but it's come out of the blue, and it has been such a dramatic collapse in every major economic data print that you could look at in a way that we've never seen before, but the response Has been, I'm not going to say commensurate, but the response has been very, very large and very, very rapid as it needed to be. But the big question still remains is over the longer term, are they doing enough compared to the damage that's being done to the framework? And I don't think they are, but these are huge responses from pretty much every major kind of G7 central bank. Well, you talk about the major central banks. Interestingly, I
0: saw earlier today that uh, Nordgebank, that's the central bank for uh, Norway, that they went to zero, that uh, this is the lowest rate they've ever had. They were also intervening in currency markets at the same time, which I thought was interesting because their currency appreciated relative to the US dollar and to the euro. What do you make of that? Uh, it, are there any implications given they're not one of those major banks?
1: Well, cutting from 25 basis points to zero, um, you know, bond or you know, flapping in the wind, horse bolted. And I would also say that you know, when you look at interest rates, the, you know, the Fed cut rates in 00203, in you know, 07 to 08, 09, um, cutting rates, I don't think is what's needed in this sort of environment. It's, it kind of it helps on the margin. But actually, we've seen that asset prices have often, at least over the last 20 years, have fallen with rate cuts from central banks. What we clearly needed this time round was this combination of monetary and fiscal, which we've not seen before. I think that's the big game that's in play. So they needed to cut, intervening in the currency market. Is that a good idea? It doesn't normally work, but obviously they're getting a massive hit because of the oil price. It's a problem for them, um, as we know, and for the sovereign wealth funds, taking a big hit as well. I think that the, I think currencies in this sort of environment ultimately always end up finding the right path. If you do it on your own, you're fighting a massive tsunami, and so I think therefore it might have a limited impact to the upside on the Norwegian krona. But if we're thinking about this being a long-lasting slowdown and a long-lasting outage for oil, then I would still bet on the Norwegian krona versus the dollar going lower. You know, uh, let me
0: go to Europe for a second here, in uh, in particular because uh, you you told me that you touched on the ECB yesterday. Um, and one of the things is is the size of the balance sheet. From my perspective, that, that's what I was talking to you about earlier. You know, sixteen percent in two thousand and seven to forty six percent right before this, and then we're now moving up to uh, you know seventy eight percent. What do you make of the what, What's the importance of the size of the balance sheet in terms of how it's going to move asset prices?
1: Well, I think the one people look at the most is currencies, and people look at this huge move in the Fed where they've effectively added 2.5 trillion to the 6.66 trillion. As we're recording, we'll get the new numbers out later, and it'll be bigger again. And it's much, much bigger and much, much faster than a lot of other central banks. So people, therefore, kind of assume from that that the dollar should be weaker because the Fed is being more aggressive. But It's sort of true, but also when you take the Fed's balance sheet as a percent of GDP, it lags the ECB, and certainly everybody lags the Bank of Japan, which is over 100% now. And also, again, this is sort of a a general way of looking at it, but if you look at the balance sheet uh, compared to volumes of currency transacted on a daily basis, the Fed lags almost everybody else because the volume of dollars that goes through global markets is so much bigger than any other currency. So the Fed has been super super supersized in terms of the absolute number some of these relative numbers are less so. And I think this is why it's it's not such a clear, fast um, story for the dollar and the central bank balance sheet released to the Fed's balance sheet, because the relative story of the Fed's balance sheet is one which is actually not that amazing versus all the others. So I think that's the key thing is we're looking at the currencies and balance sheets ultimately. And then secondly, it's the sort of inflation story. But I think that's the story for a couple of years down the road. You know,
0: uh, one of the banks that we haven't mentioned at all, that and you've mentioned them in the past, is China, you know, the Chinese Central Bank, the People's Bank of China, you've been saying to me for some time now, has not participated in this in the way that they had in the past. What do you think that means for China? But also, what does it mean in terms of the threat that they have implicitly toward uh, U.S. Uh, uh, government bond assets?
1: Well, I think the first thing is that they they don't want to juice the market in the way that they have in the past, because in 2009, they did what was a, a very substantial rate of change of balance sheet expansion. Um, very, it was phenomenal back then. And it really did help kickstart that sort of commodity rebound that we saw. And then in 2016, after the Shanghai, or during the Shanghai Accord, they were again doing a very significant rate of change of balance sheet in terms of, um, they call it total social total social financing. Now, the size of total social financing has actually reached a new record if you take the last two months added together, but it's diminishing compared to overall GDP. Now, obviously, we had a drop in GDP, but I think China is just a little bit nervous about, you know, they've got the sort of the, the number of issues they have to deal with, which is they want to obviously support the market, but they also don't want to create too much of an inflationary bottleneck. And right now, they could create an internal inflationary bottleneck, even though getting back to some form of productive capacity, they're creating um, a lot of goods, but those goods are for- foreign entities where demand is not there yet. So that's deflationary for other countries, not themselves. So I think they've been a little bit reticent to go down that path. Now, in terms of their treasuries, people are saying recently, oh, they're weaponizing or they could weaponize their treasuries. In fact, they've said, well, we'll sell them. I'm not that bothered about that because, yeah, they've got 1.1 trillion, but we've seen 2.4 trillion added to the Fed's balance sheet in the last six weeks. And we could go to 10 trillion at the end of the year. We might have 4 trillion of new issuance this year. So, okay, New issuance plus China is more than they will add between now and the end of the year. But that's new issuance, not net new issuance. But the Fed can buy it all if they want to. So to me, it's not really a problem. I think if China needs dollars and they want to sell out, well, you know, the Fed puts swap swap lines in place and repo facilities in place for most um, countries to be able to get hold of dollars. China needs to do that. Fair enough. Um, I do think that the Chinese need to devalue because they need to export the way out of this rather than pump money into it. Yeah, I mean, you know, that last point about the devaluation—that's that, the thing I was thinking the whole
0: time—is is that to the degree that they're going to sell any treasuries, it's going to have a currency effect. I mean, obviously, they, if if they're going to have the the balance that they have with the United States, they're going to have uh, to—they're going to be accumulating dollars. They need to hold those dollars in some asset form, and so they've decided that they, they would do treasuries. But if they change their their currency, then it'll be a different story if they devalue their currency it would suggest to me that they would actually need to have more they would have to buy
1: more US treasuries it, doesn't that make sense well i think you know there's the whole game that they're playing at the moment which or there's the whole game that people think that they're playing at the moment which is that you know they're going to use this this balance to you know in order to maybe tweak the dollar um, maybe uh, attack the the US and I just don't think that's really particularly probable on all counts because one thing that the US really does want is that they'd like to see the dollar weaker in the short term because the weaker dollar would help a lot of the emerging markets, um, you know, the emerging markets like Brazil, which have been suffering from strength in the dollar weakness in their own currencies. So I think that it's it's not in anyone's interest to weaponize the treasury market and to try, try and sort of deal with currencies in this way. China does need to devalue, but it needs to do it gradually so as not to upset anybody because it's going to have an inventory overhang soon, the way it's starting to produce once more. But I think overall, when I look at these these various balances between the bigger countries, and obviously, China is the one that stands out, and Russia as well, but I think it would be it wouldn't benefit anybody to start doing a rapid sell. And if you tell everyone you're going to do a rapid sell, then everyone's going to front run you anyway. So <laughs> there's no point in doing that, which is what everyone's done to the Fed, and the Fed's not bought anything yet. You know, that's, that's the game that's in, in hand at the moment. Right, that is
0: interesting. That, that that's uh, that's how it is. They haven't bought, but yet uh, all they need to do is just say that they're going to buy, and the market moves. To, I mean, basically, that's what happens with uh, the Fed funds rate to begin with. They don't need to actually do anything in that market for the market to move there.
1: No, and you know it's, it's great. It's jawbone like Draghi used to do. You know, what what uh, we'll do, whatever it takes. Well, the Fed's done a very good job so far, and I think in some ways, what would be a little bit nervous makes me a little bit nervous is that. No, they haven't been buying. Um, I don't really want to see them buying now that everybody's front run them, but they will probably have to. Otherwise, people might start to get a little bit nervous. But what it also has done is it sucked in a lot of retail. And we've seen this when you look at the Robinhood yeah. accounts. You can see it in oil. You can see it in this ETF called Jets, which is airlines. You can see it in a lot of areas, and the also in day trading margin accounts has been the big explosion. Prior to this year, retail and that emotion, that whole kind of you know, what you want to see at a bubble is emotion, particularly from retail that has been particularly absent but it looks like where they can retail who have dry powder have been coming into this market and buying the dip so i think they've been one of the drivers to the upside along with a slight releveraging of some of the risk um, risk parity type funds plus also those quasi banks which are really hedge funds who've been getting the cheap repo money and putting that into the market i think that's been driving this up in the volumes which are much much lower which i mentioned uh, last week and uh, yesterday
0: you know uh, i want to uh- I want to go back to something that you were talking to Ash about. that is Europe, uh, in terms of the German Constitutional Court and the implications there for the eurozone. I don't look at them as particularly positive, uh, and I know that you guys were talking about it. What's your overall view of what the importance is?
1: Well, I, actually, I'm interested to hear your views. I mean, you know, you've obviously been in Germany and you've probably looked at it more closely because, I have to admit that I've tended not to look at the details because whenever I've seen this before, there's always been a fudge, which is what I, mentioned, what I mentioned yesterday, i.e. the worst case scenario is always avoided because the worst case scenario would be bad. But I'd love to hear what your take on it is, because clearly there is some friction there. There always is. But do you think this is friction which is actually going to bubble to the surface during this crisis or be postponed till after the crisis?
0: Yeah, I mean, that is a good question, actually, what, whether they can uh, fudge it now. But I think that the second part of your question about after the crisis makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, the framework that I'm looking at, let's go backwards from the future to today, uh, and and we can take a look at that. In the future, at a minimum, what's gonna happen is that you're gonna leave the crisis with uh, the indebtedness in Italy and in, in uh, Greece at astronomical levels. The only other countries that would be higher are is, is Japan, basically. And so the question then is: Is what do you do about that? Because Italy will be at you know 160 percent debt to GDP, Greece will be at 180, 200 percent. There's going to be an absolute uh, dearth of uh, of impetus for people mm-hmm. to go there. No one's going to go there for a vacation. Greece is very dependent on tourism, so they're going to have to be running deficits. They don't want to be engaged in austerity. So you 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 have a problem there. The only way that you can really solve that problem is through uh, corona bonds or euro bonds uh, it, without having a default. So ultimately, what that means is 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 that you have to have debt mutualization or Greece is going to have to default. And perhaps the same thing is true for Italy. And what this German constitutional court decision says basically is is, is that, you know, if you want to engage in quantitative easing, you, ECB, we need to have a change in our treaty. Uh, we need to have a change in the German Grundgesetz. Uh, either either of those two, if they don't happen, then you can't do it, it's illegal. So if you can't do it for quantitative easing, you're definitely not going to be able to do it for uh, uh, euro bonds, you're not going to be able to do it for corona bonds. So this is definitely setting a precedent to me that says, that euro bonds and corona bonds are never going to happen unless the Germans change their constitution and unless the ECB uh, unless the the Europeans change their treaty. So going back to today, even irrespective of that, I think that you still have a problem because the German constitutional court said come back in 3 months. If you Bundesbank, that's our central bank, if you if you're not uh, if you're still buying these bonds according to these illegal activities, uh, then you're going to be uh, breaking German law. So I think that in three months we're going to see whether or not there there's uh, there's any fire to that. I mean, that's where it, the 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 uh, the proof is in the pudding. So will they be able to have a fudge? I'll I'll put it back to you in three months' time.
1: you can never put it past central bankers and uh, government organizations to find the fudge if it's needed. And I think they will find a fudge, particularly as in three months time, I think we'll be recognizing the full scale of what's happening. Now, I think there's a couple of things here. Firstly is, yeah, the corona bonds are off the table and they've been replaced by a one to 1.5 trillion rescue fund, which will have lots of bells and whistles on it, which will have sort of penal elements to it. Um, So again, these are loans which will require austerity, which is not going to be very popular with Italy. I think what we'll see here, and I mentioned this yesterday, is that really the the, the, the sort of the, the touch point for Europe is the demise or the potential demise of things like the German banking system. Now, when I say the demise of the German banking system, now that's completely wrong. It's the demise of some of the um, larger listed um, banks that might need to be nationalized. I think that Germany is in a position where, or Germany might find itself in a position where it has to do the very things it's telling everybody else not to do in order to save its own economic system. I think this is not just germany i mean it's it's globally there will be a lot of countries faced with these sorts of dilemmas and i think what we've seen so far is that the ecb and italy and and spain have all been trying to keep it pushing it out you know kicking the can down the road to the point where actually you all have to have this sort of mutualization because everybody's in the game and you might find it's the dutch or the finnish you go hang on a minute germany's just as bad here and maybe not quite so dramatically so Because obviously, there's there's the actual um, deficits nowhere near, you know, and there's lots of personal savings, but Italy has a lot of personal savings as well. But I think that's where we go with this. I think we get a fudge simply because are you going to reward a leadership that makes things worse in the middle of a crisis? No, you're going to reward those who kick the can. Well, you know, interestingly, uh,
0: here's an idea for you. As you were saying that, I was thinking about, uh, I had an interview earlier today with Richard Koo. And uh, he's a um, an economist for Namira Bank, and he was saying basically, you know, why don't we do uh, a fiscal ununion? I thought this is the interesting idea. He said, okay, look, we uh, we we have monetary union, but we don't need to do fiscal union. Let's do a fiscal ununion. And the way that he was saying it, this disunion will be where uh, we prohibit you from buying bonds of other EU countries. But your bonds can only be bought by citizens of your country, banks of your country, and that's it. And so the the, the biggest problem is is within the eurozone as as it stands now is, is that if I'm a Spanish bank or I'm a Spanish uh, citizen, I could go and buy German bonds, German bonds. Why would I buy Spanish bonds when they're not as safe? Maybe I think they'll default. Same thing for Italy or Greece. And, and, and at the same time, you know, the German banks, they can't buy um, Spanish uh, sovereign debt. So they won't be on the hook. If bad things happen in Spain, the Germans won't be on the hook, the Dutch won't be on the hook. It'll just be a, a, a controlled within the borders of Spain or Italy or whatever other country might have a, a problem. I thought it was an interesting solution. Um, what are your first thoughts when, when I tell you something like that?
1: So my first thoughts on that is always, if it sounds too beautiful to be true, it probably is. And the reality is that, and it's a bit like this with, you know, when we look at the UK coming out of Europe, is that um, people go, we want the UK to be out of Europe for when Europe blows up. But if Europe blows up, so does the UK, because we're still dependent on each other in terms of trade. And we will be even post-Brexit. And you might internalize your bond market, but... Um, if you know, if China blows up, then Japan goes down, but Japan's internalized its bond market. And that's the thing is that ultimately it swings and roundabouts. What we're talking about here is we're trying to take a specific part of the global capital flow system and we're trying to embed it into one country to say, well, there the risks are now ring-fenced. They're sort of ring-fenced, but if you ring fence internally, you can still have a blow-up that impacts everybody else because my consumption is somebody else's production and it's probably someone's production in Europe and vice versa. So you sort of... You sort of try and create, um, you try and create the ownership of the problem, but actually, all you're doing is you're just fudging it again. The problem's not going to go away. Is what I'm trying. That's a long-winded way of saying the problem has built up over decades of excess debt, excess leverage, household, corporate, and government, and we're just trying to put it into the right drawer, but it's still there. We're not right. hiding. We're hiding it, but we're not getting rid of it, and that's the problem with all this. Well, you know,
0: you're you're a guy who dealt with derivatives. As you were saying, that, I was thinking to myself, you know, I was on a uh, a, a emerging markets a currency desk at Deutsche Bank uh, when the um, uh, when, when the long-term capital thing happened, when the Russian uh, default happened, and we were trading in synthetic GKO's. And the reason that we were doing that is, is because we couldn't trade in them in the market because of exactly these kinds of restrictions. People will find ways to, you know, create synthetic uh, instruments in order to trade in these markets. You're not going to be able to ring fence them. When you were saying we're a globalized uh, economy, you know, capital flows go back and forth. There are ways to uh, recreate uh, those flows, even if people try to close you off.
1: Yeah, I mean, look. You know, in the same way that you you were doing that, we were doing the same thing in two thousand, in the noughties, You know, we were when you wanted to go short certain stocks that where there was a ban on short selling, you could still go short by selling a sector swap or a future on a sector and buying back loads of other stocks against it. So you weren't actually short a stock; you were just short a future and long stocks. So there's always a way around it. It's like with currencies, like with Venezuela. There's the there's the official currency and there's a the black economy currency, and you know which one you're going to follow. So. The reality is that the, the uh, unless you close the market down and make it completely internalized, the global market will always find a way of valuing this. And it might be that you get you know, other assets which have to adjust instead. It might be wages that adjust. Something will adjust to make up for it. So you can never really get away with it when you're interlinked as the way we are. During this whole conversation, I, think we, I don't know how long we've gone.
0: I'm looking at the clock here. Um, we've gone m- maybe 20 minutes without talking about... Uh, coronavirus right? I mean because all of these things are about coronavirus What are your thoughts on the latest what we've heard in the you know I'm thinking in particular about Italy or about uh, Sweden the differential in uh, the outcomes in Sweden versus the rest of Europe. I'm thinking about uh, you know the potential for uh, more infections in the US versus uh, uh, the rest of Europe w- what's on your mind in terms of that?
1: It's been a very strange one because the UK has actually ended up being one of the worst places. Uh, and yet it doesn't feel quite as visceral as it was in the images that we saw out of Italy. Um, and in terms of per capita, it's it's not the worst in Europe, but it's getting up there. I think what with Sweden's done, and, you know, it's it's an interesting one because, yes, it's not good versus some of the other Scandinavian countries in Finland, but it's no worse than other countries that went into a mental lockdown like we did in the UK and other places. And maybe this is just something which will always, you know, hit a certain percentage And as long as you have um, the infrastructure. And the problem for the UK was that we had going into this 0.5 beds, critical beds per thousand. Germany, I think, was 2.8. So we were always sort of on the back foot. And yet the UK took a long time to deal with it. And we've now got quite a phenomenal number. And per, per capita or per thousand, it's quite high as well. So the way I look at that is we don't know. We have no idea. And for me, the numbers today are, you know, they're they're distressing at the macro level and for a lot of individuals. But for me, what really matters is the damage that's going to be done into the future. And I keep on saying that, you know, if we have a sum total of suffering in the future that's greater than today, then we've probably done a bad job. The problem is it's visceral today. We can we can all feel it and experience it today. So therefore, we want to deal with it today. But I do think that there are so many side effects and knock-on effects from this, ranging from you know, talk of weaponizing um, the bond market. Well, that's not something we really want to see happen. And that's not the only thing that could be weaponized. And so there's a whole bunch of knock-on effects from this in terms of countries which are losing revenue due to the oil price moves and stuff like that. So I think that for me, the, the real issue remains what we think of future balance sheets at the household government and corporate level, and that I think is going to define us for the next 10 years, because if we have got this wrong, then even when we bounce out of this on the medical side of it, we'll have an economic fallout, which I think could be quite dramatic. And we might look back in five years' time and go, you know, we should have kept things open. Unfortunately, at the time, we took the right, what we thought was the right thing to do. But looking back, I think we'll be disappointed, unfortunately.
0: You know, uh, I'm going to defend Sweden to a certain degree uh, at risk of what the people in the comments are going to say. Here's how I'm thinking about it. It, It's somewhat similar to what you're saying. I I think there's a, a certain apples to oranges with regard to Sweden because they were well prepared. You know, if you're not well prepared, as you were saying, in the UK, the US... Or if you got hit hard like Italy and Spain, it's very difficult to to not have a lockdown when people are dying left and right. I I completely understand that. But in terms of the Swedish uh, uh, position, they're thinking to themselves, look, you know, uh, we have a a less densely populated country. We're well prepared for this pandemic. The question for us is, what do we do in order to make our economy as similar as possible? to what it could be over a longer period of time, meaning we don't want to go into a lockdown. We, what we want to do is we want to go into the least uh, uh, restrictive position that we can maintain over 18 months, 24 months. So the Swedes are saying, this is exactly how it's going to be. It's going to be just like this for the next two years. And we are going to take the cost on the, up, on the, the front side because we're going to be able to, on the backside, uh, benefit from that. If you looked at Sweden's Q1 uh, GDP, uh, it was a negative 0.3. Uh, people are projecting maybe they'll get down to 7%, you know, maybe as much as 14% annualized in Q2. But overall, from an economic perspective, they're going to do better. And the jury is still out as to whether or not they will actually have more deaths or not. because you know, they're going to be moving at the same pace all the way through there. There are not is already below one. So I think that there is some uh, there, there's some justification for looking at them as having done it the right way.
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I'm not sort of the I don't have really followed the numbers that well. I think one thing I would go back to is a bit like what I was saying on Italy and, and bonds and centralizing bonds, which is If the rest of Europe goes and has a very, very deep recession, then Sweden's going to be impacted by that as well. And that side of it, the economy cannot really be protected by kind of, you know, remaining open in that sense. But I think that overall, you know, what what we're seeing here is, is a whole bunch of different experiments going on in every country. Every country is doing it based on their geography, their population, their personality. We have no idea, but it feels like whichever model people are taking, it's going to be something which lasts for a long time. And I think that's the bit which is still, I wouldn't say it's its not fully appreciated. I think it is, but there's, I still get this sense that, you know, I hear people go, we're coming out of lockdown in the UK. Well, we're coming out of lockdown and that we might go and exercise twice a day. That's not coming out of lockdown. That's That's reducing the lockdown criteria. And that's two and a half months in. That to me is, again, it's that reality, the reality of the real economy in three or four months time Because it's the consumer, it's the the consumer side that this time, which has survived, even in 2008, the consumer just about got by. I know there's a massive hit to mortgages and, and housing and all the rest of it. And in 2000, it was really just the leverage into the equity market. But consumers stayed pretty well throughout. This time around, the consumer is under pressure. We've not really seen that for a long time. And I think that's going to be very difficult because it's the balance sheet, which is a solvency issue rather than a liquidity issue, which is going to reverberate for months and months after this.
0: Well, I'll, I'll leave it with that. I think that that speaks for me to not seeing a V-shaped recovery. We might see a snapback in the short term, but uh, there's, it's going to be a, low, a long grind upward uh, with that sort of outcome. Uh, Roger, as always, it has been a pleasure. And uh, I'll talk to you again next week.
1: We'll do speak to you next week. Have a good one. Cheers, Ed.